This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Enter offer code HISTORY at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. Uh, and in the first part of this two-part episode, we covered the early years of Nellie Melba's singing career and her rise to fame and a couple of foods named after her and a disastrous romance with a royal. And we're going to pick up after her affair uh, with the Duke of Orléans and we'll talk about the many travels that her singing career took her on from that point. During her career, both before and after her dalliance with the Duke of Orléans, Nellie remained a featured performer at Covent Garden. But she did not, of course, only appear in London during that time. She was lauded repeatedly for spectacular performances in New York. In a in an 1898 staging of The Barber of Seville in San Francisco, she went off libretto and sang The Star-Spangled Banner in a music lesson scene and won over an audience that up to that point had not really seemed interested in the production. I love that bit of what apparently was improvisation uh, and kind of wonderfully odd and probably out of place, but I love it. And while her star continued to rise, both because of her singing and because of her flamboyant personality, there was still a degree of divide about her. We'll talk a lot about how famous she was, but in terms of critics... Not everybody universally adored her. And even after she won over London, there were always dissenting critics who were just put off by her. They just could not get into what she had to offer. Uh, and while she had many successes, there were also a few disasters in the mix. And I point this out just because I think we talk about historical figures that had certain levels of fame, and it, it paints an unrealistic picture that everything they touched turned to gold. But in fact, uh, she was in a staging of Wagner's Siegfried at the Met in 1896, uh, where she starred as Brunhilde, and that was considered awful by pretty much everyone that saw it. Uh, similarly, a turn in Aida in 1891 was also a flop. Charles Armstrong did finally get his divorce from Nellie, but it wasn't until 1900. He had taken their son, George, who was a teenager at that point, away to the United States. They had settled in Texas, and it was there that he was finally granted divorce papers. And while she had been living in England for some time at this point, Nellie really always considered Australia her home. And in 1902, she returned there for a lengthy tour, setting a world record for concert proceeds at one of her Sydney shows. She was Australia's darling, and to her hometown of Melbourne, she was practically royalty. Everywhere she went, she was greeted with cheering crowds, and she was seen as the utmost in glamour and success, a perfect ambassador from Melbourne to the world. The tour ran for months. Nellie didn't go back to Europe until the following year, 1903. Almost as soon as the tour was over, however, newspaper man John Ezra Norton started publishing accusations in his paper, Truth, that Nellie was not all that she seemed to be. He accused her of being difficult and a drunk and a miserly parasite. This wasn't exactly a new style of journalism for Norton, although he may have been the first um, 
kind of gross tabloid situation that liked to attack uh, celebrities. Since he had acquired truth in 1896, the tone of his paper had focused to a great degree on creating smear campaigns against anyone in a position of power. And the sensationalist approach to covering events and people of the day had gotten Norton in some pretty hot water and it had actually brought many libel suits. And he expected the same from Nellie Melba. And he actually threatened that he would continue his attacks and that she was welcome to take legal action. But as is often the case with trolls, what he was really after was attention. And Nellie gave him none of that. While eventually he did move on to other targets, his writing planted seeds of gossip that followed her for quite a number of years particularly the allegations that she was an alcoholic. The early 1900s, uh, despite this weird stumbling block and these weird rumors that were started about her, were extremely successful for Nellie Melba. She continued to be in high demand around the world, singing for heads of state as well as theater audiences pretty much everywhere around the globe. And she had become so well known for playing certain roles and singing certain pieces of music that she allegedly learned no new parts from 1904 on because people demanded those same things over and over. She also began recording her songs in 1904 and her hundreds of recordings were so popular that she is credited with helping to popularize the gramophone. During a tour in the United States in 1906 and 1907, she upended the New York opera scene when she opted to appear at the new Manhattan Opera House rather than at the Met. And she gave the fledgling theater a huge financial boost in doing so. Yeah, she just wasn't happy with how the Met was handling some things. And she just thought, fine, I'll go to your competitor then. And the the uh, Manhattan Opera House was really happy about that decision. Uh, after that North American tour and her season at Covent Garden concluded in 1907, Nellie went to Australia. She was under the weather and needed to recover because she had pneumonia. And while she was away from London, another soprano, Luisa Tetrazzini, made her London debut at Covent Garden in, as Violetta in La Traviata. And Tetrazzini was a sensation, and some suspected that she might unseat Melba as the prima donna of London. This, however, was something Nellie once again was not having any of, uh, and it was not the case. When she returned from Australia to the English stage, recovered from her illness, she continued to dazzle crowds. Although she and Tetrazzini did on occasion still compete for really prized roles. But eventually, Louisa moved to the U.S. because she experienced great success when she appeared there, and Nellie Melba was once again the unopposed queen of Covent Garden. As a side note on how Nellie Melba sometimes dealt with her rivals, when a performer she didn't care for had a part in a show, Nellie, with her very recognizable and very skilled voice, would stand in the wings and then loudly sing over her onstage competitor. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's a serious diva move right there. I'm like, that's not very nice. It's not. But, uh, you know, it's very cutthroat at that point, I guess. If you want to stay the number one uh, lady singer, you got to make yourself known and not let anybody think for a moment uh, that someone else might be better. You have to give them the comparison right then and there so they hear that your voice is that much better. Nellie uh, then decided to go on another tour of Australia. But before we get to that, let's have a word from one of our awesome sponsors. So to get back to Nellie Melba. At this point, she was in her late 40s, but she showed no sign of slowing down. And she still really drew crowds with her singing. She struck out on another Australian tour in 1909, despite the bad press that Norton had tried to smear her with in previous years. She wound up being as adored as ever. 
And by some accounts, even more so. She handed out gifts of tie pins to people and issues of certificates to shops that they could display, showing her approval of their establishments. I sort of love that. Like, she's giving her blessing to the crowds as she goes. And unlike the previous tour, though, this time it really appeared that Nellie wanted to set down roots in Australia rather than just return back to Europe. She had a new home built in Victoria, which was christened Coombe Cottage, and she ended up splitting her time in the years after Coombe Cottage was completed about 50-50 between Australia and England. And she was also continuing to tour the world during that time. In addition to building a home in Australia, Nellie also began building a reputation as a teacher. She used the Marchese method as the basis of her own, making slight changes to the technique. In 1911, Nellie became the head of the Melba Williamson Opera Company in Melbourne, and her leadership in the company was primarily focused on recognizing and booking talent. For the 25th anniversary of her first performance at Covent Garden, her the theater mounted a gala with Nellie singing Mimi in La Boheme. This was in 1913. This triumphant event stood in really sharp contrast to her early visits to London when she was told she would need to get a lot of practice to get an even minor role at the Opera House. (laughs) And you may notice, as we're sort of marching through her accomplishments in her life, that we're getting pretty close in the timeline to when World War I was going to be a global concern. Nellie had just arrived in Australia for a stay there when the war began. But her career wasn't really slowed down very much by the difficulties that this conflict brought to the globe. Despite some tricky logistics and some danger while traveling, she toured Europe three times during the war and America once. She also used her fame to rally excitement and allegiance to the Allies. She worked on war charities, including auctioning off flags at the curtain of her shows. It's estimated that she raised hundreds of thousands of dollars for war charities by using her popularity for the cause. During her wartime American tour, there's a little bit of a weird blip that happens because Nellie became convinced that German agents were trying to kill her because of her work to support the Allies. Every time something went wrong along the way, whether it was some like a travel plan that went awry or a delay in their travel or a theater setup that wasn't quite right, basically anything, no matter how big or small, she attributed these issues to German sympathizers. But no real evidence of such a plot was ever found. During the war, Nellie also became more engaged with the Albert Street Conservatorium, and her classes became extremely popular. She became known as a taskmaster of a teacher, and her goal was to firmly establish a legacy of bel canto singers. Uh, she used, once again, the tradition of her teacher, Marchese, and her drive to do so sometimes pu- pushed her students to their breaking points emotionally. Nellie once wrote of singing, quote, There is no royal road to success in singing. I rate correct breathing before even the possession of a beautiful voice, for this can be marred by faulty breath control. Phrasing, tone, resonance, and expression, all these depend upon respiration. Here we have one of the old Italian secrets, which so many singers of our day have never found. Madame Melba, never shy of the spotlight, had special uniforms designed for students at the conservatory with the blue letter M embroidered on them, so everyone would recognize her students. Eventually, the Albert Street Conservatorium published a book on her technique titled Melba Method, and that was in 1926. Eventually, the school was renamed the Melba Memorial Conservatorium. Once World War I ended, uh, Nellie Melba did indeed return to London. She was actually made a, a dame of the British Empire in 1918. 
And she also was there for the reopening of Covent Garden uh, because they were relaunching the Opera House. It had been closed and used for other purposes during the conflict. But this was not the same place that it had been in the wake of war. It was not the Opera House she remembered. There was certainly a more somber tone to the entire city. And that really did not agree with the soprano diva. She was so depressed by her return to London that she actually didn't sing at Covent Garden again until 1923. In the meantime, she sang almost constantly in performances in Australia, including discounted performances aimed at making the arts affordable and accessible. She also toured with the Melba Williamson Company, although there was some competition from, uh, you know, young singers who were new on the scene. Melba held her own, but the constant touring and performing and teaching started to take a toll. In addition to her other appearances, Melba also welcomed in a new era in entertainment in 1920. Uh, that year, she became the first international artist to embrace direct radio by participating in various broadcasts. And this really helped her to maintain her status as a well-known modern performer, uh, you know, reaching out to as many people as possible. More people than ever could hear her voice without her having to tour and travel to them. In October 1924, Nellie Melba announced that she would be saying farewell to her life as a performer, but she didn't turn around to give a final performance right away. Instead, she made a series of final performances, but those didn't even start until almost four years after this announcement. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of when actors go, I'm retiring, and then they make like six more movies. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So while preparing for her farewell series... And possibly part of why they were postponed for so long, Nellie's memoirs were published in 1925 under the title Melodies and Memories. And in this book, uh, she wrote, The first rule in opera is the first rule of life. That is to see to everything yourself. You must not only sing, you must not only act, you must also be stage manager, press agent, artistic advisor. She attributed her success very plainly to a drive that she had to simply be the best. She was sometimes described as being snobby or having a superiority complex. But from her point of view, she simply demanded that all of the people around her recognize both her gifts and talents as well as her professional dedication. When asked in 1927 by reporters about the nature of her farewell concert, Dame Nelly replied, there will be a personal touch about my farewell like this. For on the operatic stage, one is aloof from the audience and another atmosphere. On the concert platform, however, it is different. It is the woman herself who is singing, not a character from a play. And at the same time, uh, it seemed that now that she was preparing to leave the spotlight, she also began helping to promote younger singers. She no longer really considered them rivals. And so there was one event where she was waving off press photographers that had kind of approached her at a railway station. And she used this younger performer that was traveling with her to sort of distract them, but also to promote this up and coming singer. She said, quote, take her photograph instead. My professional career is ending. Hers is just beginning. She must go abroad, and that will mean a lot of work and the raising of a lot of money, but it will be worth it, for she has a career ahead of her. I predicted it when I heard her sing at Government House here when she was only 14. I like that she went from singing over people. I I did have that moment, though, where I'm like, is she just pushing this poor girl out in front of other people so they'll leave her alone? She wants a moment of peace. Like, was this really a magnanimous gesture? I have no idea. Well, regardless, we will talk about her farewell performances next. But before we do, we will have a brief word from a sponsor. 
On August 7th of 1928, Nellie Melba gave her first farewell performance in Sydney, Australia. And this program consisted of songs from a variety of roles that had been fam- that she had been famous for playing. And she sang the same program at her Melbourne fa- farewell on September 27th of that year. But even that wasn't her final performance. She took the Australian stage one last time in November 1928 in Geelong. But those were just her Australian farewell performances. Then she went to England and then gave performances in Paris and Egypt. All in all, she spent about two years touring after her Australian farewell concert series. Uh, also during 1928, there was a little bit of diva drama uh, because English contralto Dame Clara Butt's biography was published. And in it, she claimed that Dame Nellie Melba gave her advice right before the English singer began her Australian tour. So allegedly, Nellie had told her, quote, sing a muck. It's all they understand. So Nellie Melba, who was always extremely patriotic about her home country, was furious. In an interview with the Daily Telegraph, Dame Clara claimed she had never seen a manuscript and would never have approved of such a thing to go to print. In the end, Butt's biographer, biographer Winifred Ponder was the person who wound up being thrown under the bus for this gaffe. Nellie accepted the excuse and was quoted by the press as saying, It is merely a stupid mistake. I would never dream of saying such a thing. I am delighted to see that Dame Clara Butt has issued a denial. And as Nellie's time singing abroad reached the two-year mark, her health really took a turn. There was a fever that plagued her, though she sang once again at a charity event in the Hyde Park Hotel before she headed home to Melbourne via steamer. Nellie's condition deteriorated over the course of her journey home from Europe. Once she was back in Australia, things did not get better. Eventually, she went to Sydney to be admitted to St. Vincent's Hospital at Darlinghurst, but unfortunately, she never left. It turned out that the fever was the result of an infection from a facial surgery she had had while she was in Europe. She died of septicemia on February 23rd, 1931. Nellie was buried three days later on February 26th. She was interred at Lilydale, the small town where her home, Coombe Cottage, was built. Friends, family, and members of the public visited Scott's church where her coffin was displayed, draped in the Australian flag, in the morning before her memorial service. And that church was the same one she had visited as a child. Her father had actually built it, and as you'll recall, he sang in the choir there. In the Reverend Dr. W. Borland's memorial speech, he said, As we pay our last tribute to the memory of our great countrywoman, let us keep in mind what the Lord gave when he raised up in our nation Dame Nellie Melba. No one in these two generations, which most of us here have known, has been so wonderfully gifted as she, whose voice thrilled the hearts of millions, whose understanding directing that voice made possible that matchless sympathy for all things human and for many things divine, which enabled her to interpret the very soul of true music. Just as was the case with any of her tours as a performer, As Nellie's funeral procession moved from Scott's church through town and out to the cemetery, the streets were filled with admirers, though at this point they were somber instead of cheering. It took three hours to get to make the way through just because there were so many people crowded around. And there were also simultaneous memorial services held in Sydney and Melbourne in packed chapels so filled with mourners that people had to stand. And a memorial service was also held uh, later in London on March 6th. Some of our listeners may have recognized Nellie Melba's name right out of the gate because she appeared as a character on Downton Abbey. 
She was played by opera star Dame Kiri Takanawa. And there's some criticism that the very idea that the star, a star of Dame Nellie Melba's stature would sing at Lady Grantham's home was utterly preposterous. Uh, and have to have been treated as a tradesperson, as she was in that episode, rather than as the creme de la creme is just unimaginable. Yeah, there were some rather scathing reviews, both of the way she was integrated into the show and of uh, Dame Takanawa's uh, portrayal of her. Uh, like her performance, too. Yeah. I read uh, one of those before I came in here, and like the review was just scathing, both of the portrayal of the character and the actual singing that happened at the episode. And then down at the very bottom was this link that was like, Read our exclusive interview with her about this. And I was like, really? Yeah. <laughs> I bet it was she's a little not bit really weird. happy that you raked her over the coals after you gave her, after she gave you the courtesy of having an interview with you about it. Yeah. It wasn't, uh, super kind. Some people took offense, uh, at how it was staged. Like people that are, are really big opera fans and particularly fans of Dame Nellie Melba because you can still hear her work online. Uh, because she did make so many recordings that they were very upset that she was, you know, she's so rarely given the spotlight, even though she was so huge in her day, but that when she was, it was juxtaposed against, it's a little bit of a spoiler, but it's been long ago now that I hope nobody minds. It was juxtaposed against a rape scene and it cut back and forth between the two. And people were like, that is not the way we want to see Nellie Melba brought back into the spotlight. Yeah. Uh, so then- there were... A lot of issues around yeah. the whole Yeah, and then thing. on top of that, it was portrayed as a as a performance that the people watching were not really enjoying because it wasn't very good. Right. Uh, yeah, there were a lot of problems with that portrayal, apparently. Um, I remember watching that episode, and I knew nothing about her at the time, so it didn't strike me as particularly odd. Uh, but it, had I known all of this about her, I think I would have been like, huh, really? They made her stay in her room? What? That doesn't yeah. seem correct. <laughs> I also have seen that episode when it originally was on in the U.S. and did not remember the name at all. Uh, like, I, I definitely remembered the episode and the performance and how it was portrayed, but it wasn't until you gave me this outline that I was like, oh, right, that, okay. Yeah. So uh, one of the things that I really notice shines through when you read Nellie Melba's writings and you read quotes from her is that, uh, she believed as a performer, you have to work hard always. And this certainly played out in her work schedule. She was constantly touring right up to the end of her life. And though she was a diva, she really felt as though success came from always putting in effort. She wanted to be treated as opera royalty, but she also did everything she could to earn that status. She was not a person that showed up unprepared or uh, just assuming that things would go well. She just didn't think talent was enough. So to wrap up, I thought, because uh, we've shown a little bit of her her less delightful qualities as well as her good ones, but I thought this was a really good snippet that she wrote as part of a larger essay intended to encourage younger singers. She wrote this in 1919. She wrote, Consider my own case. I quote it with no vanity at all, but only to illustrate my meaning. The gift of song was certainly mine. I was born with a natural trill and absolute breath control. Consequently, as a child of seven, I was as far advanced as more mature students are after years of study and practice. Yet for all that, I had everything to learn. And I kind of love that quote because she she did. She wasn't a rest on her laurels kind of talent at all. (laughs) Uh, So it's kind of a there's a lot of work ethic behind all of the diva behavior, which I have to respect. Whether whether you like that she did some of the things she did. uh, Like I said, I have to respect her work ethic. So that was Dame Nellie Melba. Do you also have some listener mail? 
Of course I do. Uh, these are actually about our, uh, Krampus and Friends episodes, which were so fun to record and research. And I've been really delighted because we have gotten a raft of listener mail from people that really, really enjoyed them and had their own stories related to them. Well, and then we've also gotten a lot of suggestions for other winter holiday slash Christmas time holiday figures. So maybe this will become a tradition question mark. That's fine with me because there's plenty more to talk about. Uh, and I've just loved it. And people have sent us pictures of their little Bafana witches that they have. And I think that's everybody's favorite of that herd because she is so charming. Uh, and they sent us pictures of their Krampus stuff and talked about their personal experiences. So I have uh, a few uh, listener mails covering that since I want to give them all a little bit of play. Like I said, we were away for a long time and getting lots of mail and I hate knowing that those people aren't getting a little bit of a light shown on them. So first we're going to hear from Cynthia who says, uh, Thank you for your delightful podcast. Many an onerous drive has passed more lights with you two along. I just listened to your podcast in which you mentioned Father Whipper's origin story, uh, salting and curating murdered children. I had to send you mail because it reminded me of something I had read about St. Nicholas. I teach at a Catholic school, and I have to confess that I love to read about the lives of the saints, especially if I can get my hands on an older compendium of the stories, which are usually way creepier and bloodier than the modern, more sanitized versions, a la original Grimm Brothers versus modern-day versions of fairy tales. In one of these was the life of St. Nicholas, and I was horribly thrilled to read therein the tale of him stopping for dinner at an inn during a famine, an inn which somehow always had meat to offer travelers, even during the general lack of food. After eating dinner, St. Nick discovered that he had been served cured child, and then he resurrected the tykes. My takeaway, of course, Santa eats children. (laughs) (laughs) I just love that so much, Cynthia. That was really delightful and funny. Uh, I love it. The next one we have is from our listener, Neil. And he says, uh, greetings, Tracy and Holly, longtime listener, big time fan. I just finished listening to your podcast, the Krampus and Friends Holiday Special Part One, and I knew I had to write in to share my American experience with Krampus and St. Nicholas. Most listeners to the podcast could safely assume that the episode was all about holiday traditions in European countries. And for the most part, that is true. However, in small parts of Wisconsin, St. Nicholas and Krampus are still observed every December 6th. Green Bay and the surrounding communities have a strong German heritage. Growing up there, it was not uncommon to hear names like Hans, Eric, or Gretchen, eat Spätzl and Wurst, sidebar of me, yum, I love Spätzl and Wurst, uh, or have a last name that ended in SCH. There were many German holiday traditions that we all enjoyed, and one of those was St. Nicholas and Krampus. Every first week of December, we were reminded by our parents, grandparents, and teachers to be on our best behavior because St. Nick was coming. Depending on what town you were in, children would either hang stockings on the fireplace or leave their shoes by the front door on the eve of St. Nicholas, December 5th. Krampusnacht, actually, is something I had never heard of until recently, probably having something to do with the release of this year's Krampus movie, although it's possible that part of the folklore simply never made it across the pond. When you woke up on December 6th, St. Nick would have left you candy and small gifts in your stockings or shoes if you were good. And if you were bad, he left you cold. If you were really bad, that's when Krampus would come to you while you were asleep and drag you off to his lair. Pretty terrifying to a child, but that's a German holiday, right? I never realized this was a local holiday until I moved to Milwaukee for college. To my shock and dismay, 
Nobody celebrated Nikolaus Fest. <laughs> they didn't even know what I was talking about. Feeling homesick and craving an excuse to eat chocolate, I decided to share my tradition with my friends and peers. I would buy miniature stockings in bulk and then leave them in people's lockers or desks filled with candies. I would proudly exclaim from Nikolaus Fest down the halls to officially bring in the Christmas season. I now live in Chicago and continue to give little candy stuffed stockings to my friends and coworkers every December 6th. I found it's a great way to share something about myself as well get everyone else to share their own holiday memories and traditions. I can't wait to have children of my own to pass this tradition on to them. Thank you for making me audibly squeal with glee during my evening commute on a public train at the mention of Krampus and for making every podcast you do so fun and enjoyable. I love that. I love the idea that uh, in the the absence of the Krampus and St. Nick uh, lore, he just brought it in himself. That's a bias for action I can get behind. Uh, So long as he's not stealing bad children, that would be (laughs) better. Uh, and then I have one more. It's a short one from our listener, Robin. Uh, and it is about Bell Snickle. She says, hello, my name is Robin, and I'm writing to you from Oklahoma. I was so excited to hear you talk about the Bell Snickle on your recent podcast about different holiday characters. I was excited to hear him mentioned because none of my friends or classmates ever knew what I was talking about when I mentioned him. This was pre the office days. My family has a strong German heritage. And as kids, we were always told the Bell Snickle watched you. And if you were bad between Christmas and New Year's, he would come and steal the the toy Santa brought you and drag you up and down the stairs by your toes. I strongly suspect the stair portion was in there because my grandparents had stairs in their home and had told the tale to my dad and his brothers and sisters. The story was always told, though, with a smile, so we knew not to take it very seriously. Thank you for adding the Belsnickel into your list of characters. It was nice to know there are others out here who have stories for the same one. I love it. Robin, thank you. Thank you to all of our people that wrote us about all of their holiday traditions and suggested, as Tracy mentioned, new characters that we could cover next year. I'm super excited about it. I thought that was a really fun episode. Yes. It was like a good way to get in the holiday spirit without getting uh, just sort of retreading the usual stuff. So it was fun for me. Yeah. Well, (laughs) often when we do when we do episodes like that, that are kind of like a collection of things, I I worry that people are going to think that it was not as robust as as what we typically do but so many people love those i was so happy about it me too i always worry as well so i'm always grateful when it turns out okay uh, if you would like to share any of your holiday memories suggestions for next year's holiday characters podcast because i'm planning to do it next year i'm compiling a list you can do so at history podcast at howstuffworks.com you can also connect with us at facebook.com slash history, on Twitter at history, at pinterest.com slash history, and mistinhistory.tumblr.com. We're also on Instagram at history. If you would like to learn a little bit about what we talked about today, you can once again, as we suggested in our first episode on Dame Nellie Melba, go to our parent site, House of Works, type in the word opera. This time, the article that you are looking for is uh, one just about the Sydney Opera House, since that is closer to home for Dame Nellie's life story. Uh, and if you would like to visit us at mistinhistory.com, you will find show notes for this and every other episode that Tracy and I have worked on together, as well as every episode of the podcast that has ever happened, including all previous hosts. So there's plenty to enjoy and go through if you are into history, which I presume you are, if you have gotten this far in this episode. So we welcome you to visit us at mistinhistory.com and our parent site, howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 